Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We're going to be picking up on page 56 with something we should all be expert in, but we're not. Sin. Indeed, the scriptures uh, tell us in no uncertain terms that it's much worse than anyone thinks it is. And so also then the Book of Concord picks this up with its article in the Formula of Concord on Original Sin, which we happen to be reading through earlier on these Thursday mornings. And there we have to marvel, because had God not come to us via the law, had God not come to us via these scriptures describing the depths to which our nature, which is good, it's a good creature of God, has been corrupted and perverted right down to its very essence. Even in our, our feelings and emotions, our thoughts and our reason and our will and desires as well, all of these deeply corrupted so that we don't even know what sin is. So it is then very worthwhile to delve into this, to take a look at what the scriptures do have to say. And we'll make some good distinctions. Uh, we'll see Chemnitz make those for us as we go along the way. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, write it, question 92. We read, what is or what do you call sin? Answer, whatever is contrary to the law of God or against the precepts of the Decalogue. Namely, not only what is done in every deed, either outwardly or inwardly, but also whatever in our nature is not in conformity with the law of God. So a densely packed sentence. Sin is defined in Scripture, in 1 John 3, 4, as that which is contrary to the law. So one might understandably make an appeal well, wouldn't my conscience tell me what is sinful and what is not? And in principle, that's true. And insofar as the conscience is functioning as God gave it to you, that's true. But what happens to the conscience? It can be misinformed and it can be abused. And if you abuse, it's like anything else in life that God gives you. Here, I think the conscience is like an organ. I always use the example of the lungs. They work fine. But if you abuse them, if you smoke and uh, otherwise abuse your lungs, don't ever exercise and this kind of thing, well, your lungs aren't going to function as well as they ought. And a conscience can become similarly damaged and not function the way it is ought. There can be distortion where it feels guilty where it shouldn't, or where it doesn't feel guilty where it should. 
it can become malformed by false teaching and by and by false teaching don't just necessarily think somebody at a podium but the way the world itself through its media shapes and forms attitudes around a given topic the conscience can be formed by that so you want to be really careful how much you imbibe because even you know you can't if all you imbibe is the false teaching of the world and you think well I'm a mature Christian I'll stand against it you you may in principle and you may to a point but you're going to in all likelihood be softened to it and we recognize this in all kinds of different ways but just this idea where you get desensitized so one of the reasons why we don't want our kids playing super violent video games all the time is because they get desensitized to the violence well what's really going on when we say desensitized the conscience is being malformed to where these things that should be horrific and scandalous they should raise your heart rate they should give you butterflies in the pit of your stomach they should make you have some sort of um emotional physiological reaction don't anymore and you just begin to think it's fine so i i mean another common example of this in our culture is the inborn revulsion to same sex uh, attractions and behaviors so if you go up to a little kid and just say hey how about a boy kissing a boy they're going to be like disgusting you know but after enough desensitization after enough enough inculturation after enough catechesis from the world they'll start to go well i guess it's normal it's fine so that's the that's an erosion and abuse of the conscience that god has given okay so that is maybe a little too wordy of an explanation for why the conscience itself isn't the best definition but rather the law of god and in so far as the conscience is formed by the law of god then the conscience is healthy okay let's see what else kenneth gives us here right off the bat so the second line he writes namely not only what is done in every deed okay so when we're talking about what is sin it's contrary to the law and we're talking not only about every deed outward or inward but also whatever in our nature is not in conformity with the law of god and so this you're you're starting to see like how deeply the problem of sin goes that again it goes into our very hearts it goes into our will it goes into our reason and emotions there's no part of us that's left untainted and really this is a post enlightenment idea or this where the idea really takes off and becomes mainstream that your reason is somehow untainted from sin or your will is somehow untainted by sin as we see and will continue to see nothing is further from the truth all right let's see if you have any reflections questions comments reflections on that first point Okay, on to the uh on to the second. So question 93, is sin then not that which is done against the laws of government? Kemnitz answer, it is indeed sin because the government together with its laws, here's the key, that are in harmony with the Decalogue 
are included in the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. So the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, and then Romans 13 is cited where Paul commends or commands obedience to the civil magistrates. So the fourth commandment is not just father and mother, but all who are in authority. And if government decrees it, that's fine. Chemnitz hasn't uh, gotten to the exception yet, which is that we must obey God and not man. So if government commands something that God forbids or forbids something that God commands, then it's incumbent upon us to stand against the government in humble but firm disobedience. Otherwise, though, we look at uh, the government, even if the laws are arbitrary, we try to keep them. Of course, I've pointed out in this class, I believe, before that it's almost impossible to keep the law of our nation because the laws keep proliferating. There are YouTube lawyers that have a, a lot of fun telling you that it's likely you've, you commit dozens, if not hundreds, of violations of American law each and every day. We've diagnosed that. The problem where you have tons and tons of laws is you have a people who have lost their inner morality and their self-governance. The idea that there is a God, whoever that God is at this point isn't important necessarily, but there is a God. He's the creator of all things. He's basically in tune with the healthy conscience and because he's given it. And I'm accountable to him at the end of this life. When people generally hold that little nexus of truths together, you don't need a whole lot of laws. They're a law unto themselves because it's like, yeah, I could do this thing to you, but I'm certainly not going to get away with it. I'm certainly going to pay for it, so why would I? But as God goes away and it's replaced with nature and as the conscience goes away because anything goes if there is no God, now there's no internal compass. There's no self-rule or regulation. So you're going to act however you want to act. What's the government going to do? Cram as many rules as it can down your throat trying to get you to behave yourself. That's like, I don't know, trying to put a whole bunch of band-aids on a, on a body that's been completely blown up. It's not going to do anything. Okay, so that's the nature then of sin's relationship to governmental laws. Questions or comments there? Question 93 in the answer. Yeah, I like that description because I was wondering, uh, you know, the proliferation of civil laws is just, you know, it's just blown up. And you're, and you're basically, I think I heard you say that uh, it's the, uh, the will of the individual because he feels he can do what he wants they've had to stuff it down onto him. And uh, so we end up with this quagmire of uh, civil laws and we don't know which one we're... So it's, it's not as clean and, and clear. I've heard it also said the English law, that our law in this country is based on English law, and English law from England, I guess, was, was based on the Ten Commandments. And uh, at what point do you think that varied and started to, uh, you know, proliferate in it probably in an accelerated way was it Mm. i'm not equipped to answer that specifically but i know who is in the congregation and after the class i'll give you his name (laughs) and he can tell you probably like the time place and hour you know (laughs) in which that occurred 
Yeah, this, this sort of drift from the natural law into what is sometimes called positive law. The best I can do for you is hazard the guess that this is all post-enlightenment kind of stuff, but who knows? It may well have roots back in certain Greek philosophers. Who knows? Um, I can't. I'm just not equipped to give you the answer there. One of the things that you said, though, reminded me that with the proliferation of laws one of the consequences of that is either a, an objective or a perceived tyranny. And that, that becomes a problem because we have a nuanced way in which we, particularly as, I think, uh, Lutherans more broadly as part of the quote-unquote magisterial reformation, because many of the reformed share these or similar principles to those that we hold. And that is that when government becomes tyrannical, there are various ways of recognizing that and various general sorts of responses to that tyranny. So you're talking about everything from just kind of a passive resistance to... It's scaling upward, uh, into, even to the point where you might violently resist the government if it's a matter of self-defense. Because think about it, or defense of your neighbor. Because you have two biblical principles, one compelling you to be obedient to government, but the other compelling you to defend your neighbor against the tyranny and godlessness and persecution of a government. So you've got these two Christian principles, and you've got a lot of room for discussion there, but that's where, ultimately, that principle of defending your neighbor's life is going to trump obedience to a tyrannical government. So lots of things for us to think about and discuss, and we've done that in other classes, and we may yet have more opportunity to do that here in Chemnitz text. But just to simply kind of zoom all the way out, 40,000-foot view, generally speaking, and properly speaking, you have the commandments of God, and of course the fourth commandment, which is authority, to honor father and mother, which is to honor authority, and that includes governmental authority. And so the laws of man become a subset of the laws of God. You can make them distinct, but they flow from the fourth commandment, the laws of God. Make sense? Okay, let's go on to question 94. Is there, for the same reason also, that sin, whatever is committed against the traditions and statutes of the bishops and prelates, because it is included in the third commandment. Here's Chemnitz's answer. When bishops teach the word of God pure and incorrupt and enjoin what Christ commanded to be observed, then their authority is sanctioned by Christ. But when they teach or command anything that conflicts with the word of God or without command and divine word, impose anything on consciences as necessary worship of God, then let us remember the precept of Christ and Paul. Okay, and 
Luke 12, 1 is quoted, and then in Paul, it's Colossians 2, 20. So I think, the, I think without going into those texts, the point is clear enough. So if on the basis of the fourth commandment, the civil magistrates are to be obeyed, then on the basis of the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, are the ecclesiastical magistrates to be obeyed. And the answer there is yes, as long as what they're doing is godly, is in accord with God's word. And the same thing generally applies to the civil magistrates. Yes, if what they're doing isn't directly contradictory to God's word, commanding something God forbids, forbidding something God commands. So you can see that that same principle effectively flows through both of these. I don't know, I find it a little peculiar that it goes from the third commandment. I guess it makes sense, but the fourth commandment in the large catechism really shows father and mother and the father as the head of the household and then the the church and the state flowing from that authority. So I find that curious that he's got it attached to the third commandment. Um, but sure, we all take his sense and we all take his meaning and no quibble there. All right, so we're getting the principles then? You know, and I would add to this maybe that the church from time to time, not, not again, we'd make a distinction from like a congregational pastor or a bishop, what we call district presidents, um, you know, making some sort of unilateral, domineering, lording it over kind of rule, okay? And we might, we might rightly reject that. But I think we should keep in mind that even as early as the council recorded in Acts chapter 15, the year 49, uh, there is a council of the church where they come up with rules that, strictly speaking, don't have to do with salvation. So, uh, like not eating strangled meat, for example. Okay, so all I'm submitting to you is this idea that I think the church can and can create and does create throughout her history various sorts of rules, regulations, orders outside, and it would be a violation of love to trample those. It would be a violation of fellowship to trample those. I think the key here is that as long as she's not binding consciences, like you have to do this on pain of eternal salvation, I think when that kind of language gets incorporated, we've clearly crossed the line. But the flip side of that, the idea that the church can never regulate anything or never set forward any rules or anything, I think is silly and just not. I, I think it's silly on the, just if you know history because the church does this in every age. And, I mean, we kind of do this on our own too. We just don't, we just don't even recognize it. Norms and mores that we have. We all joke like, you know about changing the date of Christmas or something like that. But why is that a joke? Because we all kind of assume that it's a law, a rule. And if I just decided arbitrarily, all right, friends, Easter's going to be in you know, May this year, well, there'd be an uproar, and rightfully so, because we all kind of have this rule and this norm in place it would be a violation of love for me to just unilaterally change that or for a group in our congregation to say, you know what, we're not going to participate in your Easter this year. We're going to go do our Easter in, April, in May. 
It's like, yeah, that's a divisive act. It's an act contrary to love. Okay, so I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but I do think that this has a, we have a tendency of oversimplifying these things and then distorting them. There is a government in the state and a government in the church, and they are allowed to make rules outside of the scriptures that need to be kept and obeyed. Um, and I just full stop. <laughs> full stop. We go too far if we say that you need to obey these things in order to be saved. They're somehow essential to salvation or something like that. That's a, that's a twisting and perversion of law and gospel. But sort of this knee-jerk reaction we have of like the church cannot and does not ever make laws or rules is, again, just is superficially insane to me. Yeah, please. So there was an article in the Lutheran Witness. It's on their website now on the date of Christmas. And it Ah. actually has some really compelling arguments why December 25th could actually be the birth of, of Christ. So that may be not so relevant, but my my point or thought is that there's a certain amount of hubris in in me being able to look at what the church has said and say, oh, they must have just made that up. Ah, You know, there's there's a reason why the the church Mm -hmm. uh, has made the decrees that it has over the years. And it's not up to the individual necessarily to nitpick and say, well, they must have got that one wrong. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, you sort of have this, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if it's Chesterton or C.S. Lewis right now, maybe one of you will remember, the, the idea of the, the tyranny of the minority of the living. <laughs> you know, so you've got, we've got all these countless saints in this church that's left us the way things are, and we say, well, we know better than all of them, let's change it all. That that's the, the foolish tyranny of the minority that are living. So you need to realize there's a bigger family and a bigger household, bigger accountability. Yeah. Well, I've saved my trump card till the end, in case anyone was contentious. But the church, uh, our church, every congregation has its own constitution and bylaws. So that proves my point, right? We all have agreed to govern ourselves in these ways. What verse from Scripture says you have to have a constitution of bylaws? None. So see, we're already off doing it. Yeah. And I would, I, I mean, I'll just offer a real quick critique here too, and I know this will kind of maybe help some of you understand where I'm coming from in other comments I've made, but this is why I don't really think it's tenable to do this whole thing of like, so the civil sphere is about power and the church isn't about power. No, they're both about power. It's just different exercises of that power. I mean, there's power in the fact that here's the bylaw, you're outside of it, the voters' assembly is meeting, and you're going to be excommunicated. I mean, that's a power. (laughs) It's a power to um, recognize and denounce heretics. That's a power. Uh, It's just not the power of the sword. You can say it's the power of the pen or the power of the book or the power of the word. I mean, all of those are good expressions. It's not the power of the sword. We don't take up the sword as church and execute people, right? So there are different kinds of power, to be sure, but I think it's all power, and I think we're deceiving ourselves if it isn't power. I mean, even Christ says, all authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now, I don't know how you're going to make a distinction between power and authority. I know... uh, one theologian who tries to make that distinction maybe does an okay job with it, so there's something there. 
making a distinction between one kind of power and another kind of power, fine, but making a distinction between like, and I think this comes to us from our catechism, the kingdom of power versus the kingdom of grace versus the kingdom of glory, which I've tried to track down that, that idea. If anybody can help me find the origin of it, I think it's a reformed idea, and I think it's fine insofar as it goes. It's great. I have no problem with that part of the catechism. It's just, it gets taken like all our Lutheran stuff does. It's like, so here's some distinctions that are helpful, and then it gets a life of its own. And now all of a sudden, it's like the kingdom of the power means the other things can't have power. Well, the kingdom of glory has power. That's the kingdom of God's reign in heaven. That has power. Look at the book of Revelation. Everything that happens is coming from heaven down to earth. The bowls of incense being poured out, the angels going down there, the army of heaven coming down. So, I mean, I think there's power all the way across. Just what's being articulated there is not the power of the sword. That's not the, that's not the kingdom of grace. That's why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And um, do you not think that I could have uh, petitioned my father and he would have sent 12 legions of angels to defend me? See, it's not, a, it's not a physical power, a power of the sword, but that doesn't mean there's not power. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just a little bit earlier, that same day by Hebrew reckoning, Jesus is in the garden and they come and he says, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, not what the English says, I am he, but I am that I am, ego I me, and they all fall down, showing that the armed guards with the power of the sword have no power over and against the power of the word. He speaks and they all fall down. So again, I think that, that that's an element, unless we're going to quibble over semantics, where you see distinct power and the superior power of the kingdom of grace, the superior power of the word over the sword. Okay, I'm banged that drum enough, probably. All right, any, uh, any thoughts, any, um, any reflections, questions? On to the next. 95, why do you call only that sin which conflicts with the law of God? Because God claims for himself alone in the church as in his great house. It's such a beautiful picture of what the church is, God's house. God's household, he's the father. When he's telling you to come on Sunday, it's like your father saying, hey, come have family dinner. Just great. The authority to command and to forbid. So this is God's claim for himself alone. The authority to command and to forbid and lordship over consciences. Therefore he begins his commandments thus, I am the Lord thy God. He therefore prescribed a certain rule in the Decalogue according to which he wants it recognized and decided what is to be regarded as good and just and what is to be regarded as wicked and sin in the sight of God. So be really careful, and this is something we all need to be aware of, of quote-unquote cultural sins, which are in fact not sins at all. Okay. 
So be very aware of that, that the religions of this world, and they're not so obvious to us in this day. I mean, Satan and his friends have gotten a lot better. It's like we don't just have an altar of Moloch where you throw your kids up on. That would be too obvious. Okay, but that doesn't mean that Moloch's gone the way of the dinosaur. He's around and he's still being worshipped. It's just in ways that Western people don't perceive even though we're doing the same exact acts of worship, saying the same exact things that have always been said, etc. Okay? When we realize that there are competing religions, competing gods all around us here in the States, they're just hiding, then we need to be really careful because what you'll start to see is that there are false virtues and false sins connected with all of these. So let me, let me give you one example, and I don't mean to pick on any one thing in particular. I'm just sort of picking it out of the air, okay? But when we serve the goddess of nature in this country, the metric by which you are weighed is not the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, but let's say your carbon footprint. And too much, you're a sinner, And if you are green enough, you're righteous. And then there are other things that are connected with other religions as the false gods of the ancient world were all interconnected at points. There's interconnection between Moloch and the goddess of creation because the fertility goddess, we can call her Ashtoreth if you want. Um, But the connection there is in order to serve the environment, you need to have less children, so you need to abort them, and now you see how Ashtoreth and Molech or Ashtoreth and Baal are wedded in the murdering of children, um, even albeit for different purposes. But these have their own righteousness within that religious system. That's why it's not enough to just be free to have an abortion, but you have to celebrate your abortion. It's not enough to engage in sexual perversion under the cover of night or darkness or the closet or anonymity or whatever, you have to have it celebrated. What you're witnessing then is an entirely different set of what is a virtue and what is a sin, right? So what is righteous and what is ungodly within that false system of religion? So we Christians are, are already being charged, and we just need to become more aware of this. We're already being charged by all kinds of false sins, and the very last thing you can do is feel bad about it, or even, I think even worse, is say sorry. Because you're acknowledging that that system and that God are right and have that claim over you. So, again, as we become aware of these things, and as we're told to apologize for these completely fabricated and made-up sins, we absolutely cannot and must not. We must utterly deny it and reject it. And it doesn't matter if they call you fascist or Nazi or, you know, whatever their slurs are. You just have to say, I don't acknowledge your slur. I don't acknowledge your system of virtue and sin. I don't acknowledge your God. You'll have no claim over my conscience. And the last thing on earth I'm going to do is apologize to you or anyone else for this sin, in quotes, that you have concocted. 
So we have to be aware and increasingly aware of the religious landscape in which we uh, live and the kinds of slurs that are going to be thrown at us. And I think then this question 95 and its answer are of the utmost importance and relevance for us in this particular time. And that is that God himself alone has the authority to command and to forbid. He alone has the authority over consciences. He alone defines what is sin. And then in defining what is sin, you necessarily define what is virtue. Those are, I mean, that, those are inescapable realities. If you've said that something is bad, you've just as equally said that something is good. There's no way around that. So I, you know, for, for a while, Lutherans were all bent out of shape, like we don't like virtue or something. It's like, ah, yeah, okay, we don't want to replace Christianity with you know, Aristotle or something like that, point taken, but is that really a genuine threat? <laughs> so in our cultural milieu, we need to regain the sense of what is truly a virtue. And of course, at the core of that is beer, man. What is truly of man is going to be that which is in conformity with the image and righteousness of God. That's going to be what a virtue is. A man made after the image of God is going to exhibit those characteristics of God. That's particularly what a virtue is. Okay, so all of that we want to regain. Um, Thoughts on your own? Yeah, there's a question in the back or a comment in the back. Oh, just the idea of uh, self-control, how important that is, and self-governance, I mean, by extension, that a man, if you have strength, like Hercules, the strongest man in the world, but he lost his temper and he killed all of his family, you know, perfect example. So without self-control, strength is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, that... that there is that admonition in the scriptures to be self-controlled. And that's um, clearly given to Christians. So I don't think we need to pop the hood and get into all the gears and mechanics there, but the idea being that if we are sons of the Father and the Father has told us who he is and how he is, we want to take responsibility to be like father, like son, and to live that reality as best we can. And of course, that's the place for daily and weekly confession absolution, which isn't an act of hypocrisy. It's the act of of complete uh, faithfulness, where we're saying to the father, these are the ways in which I've fallen short of who you are and who you would have me be as your child, Forgive me and renew me so that I can delight in your ways and walk in your ways. Yeah. So confession absolution is always a part of that on account of the original sin that indwells us. But I'm getting slightly ahead. Chemnitz is not quite there yet, but we will be momentarily. All right, anything else? Great comment. Anything else? Okay. So let's jump on to 96. What is the judgment of God against sins? 
Or what is the wages of sin if the sinner is not reconciled to God in this life? Here's the answer. God hates and abominates sin and is deeply angry at it. Case citations given. And he not only threatens with words, but as a very zealous one, he visits and punishes sins both in body as well as soul, with both temporal and eternal punishments. Temporal punishments are punishments in this life. And again, we're very pragmatic-minded. We don't often think introspectively of the soul, and so we think chiefly in terms of temporal consequences of the body, but we should be aware that there are temporal consequences for the soul. And the, like, just to give you a quick window and insight into that, something to consider. So Lutherans of previous generations, along with a deeper um, a deeper sort of tradition in the church, in the Western church anyway, we'll talk about spiritual senses. In the same way you have five physical senses, they'll talk about five spiritual senses uh, parallel to the five physical senses. So sense of the soul to be able to perceive, see, um, but also to taste and smell and if you think that's ridiculous, you might think of just the verse where Paul says, we are an odor of death unto those who are perishing, but an odor of life to those who are being saved. So there's a sense of spiritual smell. Maybe you've, uh, have, you ever, have you ever listened to a heretic or read a heretic and it starts smelling of sulfur? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a joke. You're not physically smelling sulfur, but there is this sense in your soul, in your inner man and being, where you go, well, this is an awful lot like the devil. Okay, so that's, that, this would be insight into the spiritual senses. Now, we've utterly lost all this because we're so pragmatic and material and we've, we've sort of, even as Christians here in this time and place, bought into an overly, quote-unquote, scientific or physical materialistic worldview to where we've denied these things. But these are things to look out for, that God can punish sins both in the body as well as the soul, um, both temporally and eternally. And it's worth paying attention to. And it's worth realizing that there are consequences to sin, not only in your body, but also in your soul and in your ability to perceive and receive the things that God otherwise has for you. So, in short, sin's a big deal. And sin is a big deal because it's not just breaking a rule, but it's hurting you in concrete ways. Okay, everybody all right with that? Questions, comments? Good. Just want to, I know this is stuff we rarely talk about, so I want to make sure I'm giving everybody opportunity to, to speak if they want to speak. Question 97, how manifold is sin? Answer, twofold, original and actual. And he's going to go into describing this, so just kind of let that sit, that there's this distinction between original and actual. Very, very quickly, biblically speaking, um, original sin would be like being a bad tree. What's a gross fruit? Is there gross fruit? Like crab apple. Nobody wants to eat a crab apple, right? So original sin is just being a crab apple tree. 
what a crabapple tree produces are crabapples. Okay? That's original sin is bad in and of itself, but what it produces is bad. Okay, that's the difference shorthand between original and actual sin. Okay, 98. Why do you not say that sin is fourfold so that one might add that some sin is mortal and some venial? So here we've got this distinction between mortal and venial. Let's see how Chemnitz handles this. When we speak of sin as to what it is per se, no sin according to the statement of the law and considered in its own nature, so to say, and per se, is venial. All right, put your finger there. That is to say, the wages of sin is death. If you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the entire law. One sin, no matter how small, even if it were just eating a forbidden fruit is damnable. In that sense, all sin is mortal. All sin leads to death. That's the first thing that Chemnitz is stating here. He continues, but all sins make one subject to eternal death and damnation. Therefore, the distinction between mortal and venial sin is valid after a person has already been reconciled with God through faith in Christ, we will therefore postpone it to that place. Okay? So think about it this way, and this is very important sometimes in theology. When we're talking about human beings, we find human beings in four distinct states. And sometimes between Christians, when we're yelling at each other and arguing each other, it's because we haven't defined which state of humanity we're talking about. So, of course, there's the pre-fall state of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's one set of human abilities and human nature. The second is we're talking about Adam and Eve and the rest of the human race after the fall, post-fall, but before being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Just a fallen human being. For a fallen human being in that category, is there any such thing as a venial sin, a sin that doesn't lead to death? No, all sin leads to death. And that's Chemnitz's point. The third category of human being we find is the category that we're all in. We have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. We have renewal by the Holy Spirit within. For us, there is such a thing as venial and mortal sin. Now, as Kenneth is going to later define it, it works like this. Mortal sin is impenitent sin. Venial sin is that sin for which we repent. God does not reckon it against us. That's why Luther in the Catechism says we should plead guilty of all sins before God. We simply confess what Job confesses. I'm afraid of all my life. I confess and plead guilty of all sins. I desire nothing more to be thoroughly impenitent and, or excuse me, thoroughly penitent and thoroughly aligned with God in his judgment. Okay, that's, that's the state of repentance. And then if you happen to fall into sins, those are venial sins indeed. Romans 4 says that God doesn't even reckon them against you. He simply overlooks the trespasses of his saints. Okay, so... That's the third state. And then the fourth and final state is, of course, man in, in uh, the new heavens, the new earth. 
so resurrected in our bodies, um, in that sort of Eden again, only even better. All right, those are the four different states. And so only two states do we deal with sin, the two middle states, prior to conversion and after conversion to Christ. And then we see how there is no venial sin for those who are unbelievers. For those who are believers, now we can fruitfully use the distinction between mortal and venial sin, mortal, impenitent, venial, penitent. Yeah, I see a hand. So I know that's kind of a lot of jargon and a lot of concepts and... think this is a perfect place to ask what we were talking about earlier. Great. With regard to these four categories, how should we rightly think about man made in the image of God as it applies? Do we, do we, are we still in the image of God in all four categories? The little G, you know, how is man, I don't know, I guess that's the question, right? Am I asking that right? Sure. Are we still in the image of God? Right. Yeah. Even though we're sinned and damned by our unrepentant, or they were still made in the image of God, they just yeah. didn't get reconciled to him. Yeah. Okay. So, so I can help clarify. Um, the way the Lutherans talk about this, and it's, it's after Augustine, so in that line, Western Church, Augustinian, is the way, the way we discuss this is, um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Why did I do that? What's the, what was the question again? Image of Image of God. My goodness. Getting old. So the cleanest way to think about this is that, is that the image of God is totally lost. So the image of God is identified as the righteousness of God. And we've utterly lost that righteousness of God. If you want to do proof text, go back to Genesis. I think it's Genesis 5. And what you find there is... Prior to Genesis 5, Adam and Eve are created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 5 makes a huge deal. I think repeats it, Moses repeats it at least twice, that they're now in the image of Adam. Okay? So in the strict sense, we have lost the image of God. We have lost original innocence, original righteousness, original blessedness. Now, in what sense, in what minor sense could you say we still have the image of God? Okay, And this actually is addressed in the Formula of Concord, Article 1 on Original Sin. You can say, insofar as man remains essentially a good creature because God made man. You don't, God's not the author of evil. God makes man. It's like, it's like okay, if, uh, if you made a cupcake, is the cupcake good? Yep, you're good. You made a good cupcake. Now somebody comes and puts a whole bunch of like cyanide syrup all in the cupcake. Okay, is the cupcake good anymore? Ugh, kind of hard to define. Well, it is in its original sense. Insofar as it's a cupcake, it remains good, but it's gotten horribly corrupted by the cyanide syrup. Entirely corrupted. Is there anything good left in it? No. So this is the kind of semantic sphere we're working in, okay? So you want to be able to say that 
God made a good man, the chef made a good cupcake. In that sense, we all still bear the image of God, but that image of God, that deliciousness of the cupcake has been lost by the thorough tainting of the cyanide syrup, of the sin that indwells every part of us and corrupts every part of us. So only in a very minor way will we talk about retaining of the image of God in that sense. And, that, and then that's true also for all human beings. It's not just Christian here. All human beings retain the image of God insofar as they're all the good creature of God. They've utterly lost the image. This is the dominant way we talk about it. They've obviously lost the image because they've been completely poisoned by sin. Yeah, so, so what happens is, in the first place, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. And that is really the basis of our justification and standing before God. So, and that is received by faith. So God does not reckon the sins of Abraham or of David against these men on account of their faith, nor does he reckon our sins against us, but reckons us to be perfectly righteous. That's judicial, courtroom, forensic language of a transaction that's taken place um, in the mind of God through the cross of Jesus, where now he credits with righteousness those who believe. Okay, and that's the, that's the chief part. I mean, that's justification. That's the foundation. Distinct from that conceptually, but holistically one with that is the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us that we believe and that we are also renewed. And we would distinguish that from justification with the language of sanctification. That renewal is an ontological reality, reality in my being. My heart as a believer is different than my heart as a non-believer. So are my desires. And now, that's only begun in this life. It's never perfected. And that new man that is, that renewal, that new man that is begun in me by God is a constant war with the old man. And the old man prevails, and the new man prevails, and back and forth the battle goes. And Paul even you know, has a way of kind of painting this in the negative. The good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord. That ontological righteousness continues and progresses. Um, If we're in, in keeping with God, it grows stronger and stronger in this life. And, of course, there's setbacks, but it grows stronger and stronger. And then death is the continuation of that process. Because in death, God finally strips the old Adam away from us. And in that sense, we're finally free. But that even continues unto the resurrection of our bodies, where once we're in our bodies, we're finally whole. We're finally, like, eaten again, only better And we're in this final state. And why I say even better is think of Eden where they had physical bodies like ours. Everything was good. We're going to, in the new heavens and the new earth, have spiritual bodies. These bodies absolutely perfected and elevated beyond that which Adam and Eve had even in Eden. 
So it's Eden again, but even better, even more, the climax and perfection of this age. So hopefully that helps give you the whole picture there. All right, anything else we want to touch on here? So more to come on mortal and venial. Don't hold your breath, though. We'll get there in a little while. Okay, what is original sin? We've been tiptoeing around it and given some definition, but let's get it right from Kenneth. The answer, question 99. Let the common definition be stated <laughs> and other questions be added to its explanation. Okay, the common definition uh, would, amongst pastors, in all likelihood, been concupiscence. Okay, so con, usually the prefix meaning with, Cupid is where we get Cupid, the desire. Okay, the, you know, Cupid goes around shooting his little arrows and then you desire, I don't know, your spouse, I think. <laughs> so, concupid, Cupid, desire, sense, having that status or having that way of being. So, with us is this desire. That's concupiscence. What is this desire? Contrary to the things of God. Okay? God says, I am the Lord your God. Say, have no other gods before me. Say, how about if I have some other gods with him and before him? That's concupiscence. Okay? Um, God says, jump up. You go, how far can I dig down? God says, dig down. You go, how far can I jump up? Uh, Whatever God says, the nature of man is opposed to that. The nature of fallen man is opposed to that. That's concupiscence. That's original sin. And original sin is there, again, before it even acts. So this is like, could you be, con in theory, if you never committed an actual sin, could you still be condemned? Go back to the terrible, wretched crabapple tree. Okay. You see that it's a crabapple tree. It hasn't borne any crabapples yet. You want to cut it down and replace it with something nice like an apricot tree. Okay? So just by identifying what it is before it bears any fruit, you've already identified it as something you don't want, something that is bad and produces bad things. Original sin works just that way, so that God looks at us and sees us as bad trees, whether we've borne bad fruit yet or not, that is what we are. That's the condemnation on the basis of original sin alone. We're bad trees because we literally come from Adam, who fell and became a bad tree, and that's all we can ever be is bad trees by birth, by natural birth. Indeed, that's how original sin is passed on, is man and woman come together, and there's a child, and that child isn't something different than what they are. You know, when... When two ducks come together and they have little ducklings, you know, two ducks don't come together and then suddenly there's cats or there's human beings or there's dogs. Ducklings always produce ducklings. Sinners always produce sinners. Okay? So that then gives us a sense of how we're all bad trees in Adam. Because Adam and Eve are, sinner, are sinners, then we're all sinners. And you can see then how it is that we have to have a new birth. We have to have a new birth and thus become entirely new creatures and become good trees. And we do that by being born into the image of God, and that's baptism. 
to be reborn into the image and likeness of God, to be God's children and God's sons again, um, to be produced not by flesh and blood, but by the will of God. Thinking of John chapter 1 there. Okay, so then that's who we are. And you can truthfully say that I am a saint and a sinner. So that simul justus et peccator language, simul at the same time, a justus justified saint, et and peccator sinner. I am just and a sinner. But properly speaking, the I that exists before God is the I of the new man, the me of the new man. And that old Adam which remains in me is not I, and there's a distinction. That's why Paul says in Romans 7 that if I agree, if I, the new man, agree with the law of God that it is good, and it's what I want to do, then it is no longer, in fact, I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. So there, the proper way of speaking is the I is the new man, and you see this alien thing in you, the old man, and you go, that's not me anymore. So just to zoom all the way back out, we've got these two ways of speaking. We can speak of ourselves in the whole and say I'm at the same time a sinner and a saint. Notice the I, sinner, saint. Okay, And that's a fine way of talking. But we can also talk this other way. The I proper is the new man. And the old man in me isn't me at all. It's sin that dwells in me and I can't wait to be rid of it. It's not me. Definitively. Okay. So those are two ways of speaking that you find in the scriptures. All right. Did I see a hand? Question, comment? Nope. Just stretching. All right. Okay. So that gets us, um, that gets us then to this idea of original sin. Um, question 100. Whence is original sin? Answer. By one man sin entered the world and death by sin. Romans 5.12 cited. There was no death before sin. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What kind of consequence is that if they were already going to die? So sin comes in and death also. And even then you can see that death is of a threefold nature. As soon as they eat of it, do they die physically? No. But God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. In the day. Did they die that day? Not physically, not in the way we think of it. And it's because we don't think about death quite accurately, the way the scriptures tell. So in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they absolutely did. From that moment on, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, to borrow from Paul in Ephesians 2. That's why they hid from God in the garden. That's why they tried to clothe themselves. That's why they didn't immediately turn to God. They all, and then when God does call them out, they all blame each other, right? (laughs) Oh, it was the serpent. It was the woman. And on down the line. Okay, so that's... um, Boy, I am losing my train of thought today. 
Need more coffee. That breakfast smells really good. <laughs> so anyway, maybe we'll just um, pause there and hit question 101. But this is how sin enters the world. Um, they're dead in their trespasses. Uh, you know, it's, it's centuries later. At least we know this for Adam. We don't know about Eve. Uh, we assume the same. But it's centuries later that Adam physically dies. So there's the second aspect of death. And the third aspect of death is when... So the second aspect of death is the separation of your body, which is punitive. I mean, in effect, from a God's eye view, you're being cut in half. That's why floating around in heaven forever without a body is completely foolish and misunderstanding because you're like, you're cut in half. It's not right. So it's not how you were made to be. So that's the punishment of temporal death is being cut in half. And then that consequence of that is what happens to your body. It becomes the food of worms. And what happens to your soul? It too becomes the food of worms. Where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And that's the culmination of a spiritual death which finally manifests itself in physical death which finally manifests itself in eternal death. It's all one death, it's threefold, and it has these phases. So then you can see that what Christ does is attacks and remedies each one of these phases. So attacks and remedies spiritual death by we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. He can only make us alive if he's atoned for our sins. So he atones for our sins, he makes us spiritually alive. When our bodies and our souls are cut in half, he will reunite those in perfection and raise us from the dead. And because he's going to do that, he spares us the experience of eternal death, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He spares us that experience and rather brings us to himself in paradise. So this is the threefold death and the threefold remedy of death through Christ. Okay, that's enough for today. Before my brain falls out my ears. The Lord be with you.